be seated. Amen. Good morning. My name is Kurt, and I'm one of the pastors here. A special welcome to you if you're visiting with us. Uh, don't run off after the service is over. Have, grab some coffee. We have some free uh, mochas at Mission Mochas. If you stop by the Welcome Center, we have some gift cards, and you can pick one of those up for a couple free mochas. We'd love to get a chance to get to know you a little better. We are in the middle of a series called One, which is a uh, series going through the book of Philippians. And so if you have brought your Bibles with us, we're kind of doing it a little bit as a markup series. And if you'd like to take some notes along the way, you can do that. Uh, Otherwise, we'll also have the words available for you on the screen. Uh, As we've been talking about, uh, the book of Philippians is really a letter. It's not so much a book as it was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the Roman city of Philippi. Uh, 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul had planted this church and uh, had helped them get started and then moved on to uh, do some other missionary work and along the way found himself uh, imprisoned for the gospel. Uh, He had been accused of uh, causing a ruckus and an uproar in a city and of course they threw him in jail. And so he's writing to them because they were concerned about his welfare and his uh, status. And so he wanted to give them an update. Uh, The first chapter really was greetings from Paul to the church. And he wanted to encourage them. He wanted to tell them that he was okay, that his status didn't, wasn't as important as the fact that the gospel <coughs> excuse me, was advancing. And because of that, he had joy. And he wanted them to also be joyful and to be praying for the gospel to continue to advance, not only through Paul's ministry, but among themselves. And he talked about how he wanted to remind them of who they are in Jesus Christ, that their identity as Christians was the guiding factor to help them understand how to navigate not only the opposition they were experiencing from the culture around them, but also the opposition they were experiencing to the gospel that was arising within their midst as a community. So we're picking up the series today in uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Before we jump into the text, though, I want to invite you to just pray with me one more time and ask for God's blessing on this time of looking into His Word. Would you pray with me? Holy God, we do thank you that you are a God who is not silent. You are a God who speaks. Not only have you given us your word in the Bible, but through your spirit, you continue to use the words of the Bible to awaken our souls to the words that you would have for us each day and every day. And so now this morning, Lord, we ask that you would use the words of Scripture to awaken our minds and our hearts to who you want us to be and who you've called us to be as followers of your son, Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. The uh, second chapter of Philippians starts off with an important word for Paul, therefore. Anytime you get to the word therefore in one of Paul's letters, it's an important word because essentially what he's doing is he's, he's saying, everything that I've said up to this point now has an important meaning for what I'm about to say now. So take in, keep in mind everything that I've said up until now, and, and I'm going to help you learn how to apply that more specifically as I talk about what's coming next. So he begins with this word, therefore, and he goes on to say, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, 
Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Now, let's pause there for a minute. And as we've been kind of making some notations and, and marking up our Bibles, if you uh, have a pen or a highlighter, I'd like to go through this first opening few verses and underline all the characteristics that Paul is wanting to identify for the Philippians. There's kind of a, almost a laundry list here, but I think it's helpful to, to highlight the characteristics that he's talking about, and then we'll spend a little time understanding why is he identifying these characteristics and how do they compare to the, uh, the contrary ones that he lists at the end. So he, he starts by saying, if any of you have encouragement, underline the word encouragement, from being united, underline united with Christ. If any comfort, underline comfort uh, from his love. If any common sharing, underline common sharing in the spirit. If any tenderness, underline tenderness. And then, and compassion, you can underline compassion. Then here's an interesting one. Then make my joy, and I, I've been having a circle the word joy as we go throughout. We're going to find a surprisingly large number of times that Paul mentions the word joy throughout this letter. So I thought if we circle joy as we go throughout, we can go back through and look at how much joy is an important part of what Paul is trying to encourage the Philippians to, to grab hold of and understand. Complete, make my joy complete by being like-minded, under, underline like-minded, Having the same love, underline the same love. Being one in spirit, you can underline one in spirit, and of one mind, underline of one mind. Then he kind of changes gears and he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition, you can underline selfish ambition, or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, underline humility, value others above yourselves. Value others, you can underline. Not looking to your own self-interest, but to interest, each of you to the interests of others. Okay, so let's pause there and, and talk a little bit more about what is this whole laundry list of characteristics about. We have to remember that the therefore that Paul is talking about is wanting to remind them that he spent the whole first chapter trying to encourage them to remember who they are. To remember that as Christians... They were called to be a community of people who reflect the love of God in their relationships with one another. Remember who you are called to be as saints, as those people who are set apart by God for His holy purposes. And we too, as Christians, are called to be a community of people that knows how to love one another well. That's really what Paul was saying is the primary identity of what, is it, what it means to be church. A church is a group of people, a community of faith that knows how to love one another well. Jesus himself said to his disciples before he went to be with the Father, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So verse 1 here for Paul is really a description of of our experience of what relationship with God in Jesus Christ is really all about. You see, it's our relationship with God that has been made available to us through what Jesus has accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection that then not only shapes our identity but helps us understand how we are supposed to model our lives after the love that he has shared with us. Our experience of church and community is intended to be based on what God has done for us in and through his son, Jesus Christ. We have received encouragement, Paul says, 
from God, from being united with Jesus. Because God has, has united us in his life through his son Jesus, we should find encouragement in that. We should not be afraid of the difficulties and the challenges and the people who might come against us as Christians or the culture around us. We should find courage. We should be encouraged to move forward in this life that he's called us to live. And in the midst of difficulty and sometimes even suffering, we should receive comfort from the love of God because God's love and his mercy and his grace has been made available to us through the power of his spirit in our lives. And therefore, we have fellowship with God's spirit. And that fellowship with God's spirit, that relationship with God, is the same spirit that we all share. If I have the spirit of Christ in me and you have the spirit of Christ in you, then we are uniquely bound together in a relationship of love that other people can't fully comprehend. But we have that fellowship, that unity that binds us together because we share that same spirit of love and grace in our own hearts. And ultimately, he says, then the other characteristics of tenderness and compassion are the things that should flow outward in our relationships with one another. We see God's tenderness and his compassion to each one of us in the ways that he has loved us through Jesus Christ. He did not come to punish us. In fact, he came to to allow Jesus to take on the, the, the burden and the weight of our own sins so that we wouldn't have to. Instead, he comes to us with tenderness and compassion saying, I love you, all is forgiven. Come back to me and enter into life together. And so you see, Paul is reminding them of their identity in Christ and this experience of God's love as they first came to faith in Jesus. And he says, if this is who we believe ourselves to be, then this is what we each need to learn how to be in our relationships with one another. We need to be like-minded. We need to think these thoughts together. We need to have this same love for one another. And we need to be united in, in God's spirit and in his purposes because that's ultimately what it means to be God's holy people, his saints, to be set apart for this purpose. See, we are called as followers of Jesus Christ, to be a community of people that knows how to love one another well. One way we could describe a community of people that loves one another well is a, is a phrase that we often use as we talk about the church. We are a family. A family, and it's ideal, right, is a, is a group of people who love one another well. They share life together. They share resources together. They, they live together day in and day out. We need to come together, Paul is saying, as a family, as the family of God. But as we talk about being family in the church, I think it's always important for us to ask the question that, that begs to be asked, right? What kind of family are we going to be? Are we going to be like your family? We're going to be like my family. A lot of times when we start talking about family in our culture, it doesn't always engender a lot of positive feelings by people, right? Because in our culture, we don't have a great track record of doing family well. Many of us have come from wonderful family backgrounds and been very blessed by our parents and our brothers and sisters. And and we have that heritage that we look back to with with fondness and that has given us a a solid platform to, to launch into life. But many of us have not had that kind of loving, solid foundation. And we, we've had to work very hard to overcome some of the brokenness and the dysfunction of our family heritage. So the prospect of being family together as a church isn't always one that people get really excited about. 
Maybe some people, it's like the story of Thomas Hansen, who back in the, in the 70s sued his parents for $350,000 on the grounds of parental malpractice. His mom and dad had botched up his upbringing so badly he charged in the lawsuit that he would need years of costly psychiatric treatment to overcome it. Or some people have said that the immortal words of Winston Churchill, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, reminds them of some people's family vacations. Or you may have heard the story of the little girl who was being punished and asked to sit and eat her dinner alone in the corner and the whole family was told not to to talk to her or even pay any attention to her because she was having a time out until the family overheard her praying for her meal and she said, thank you, Lord, for preparing a table before me in the presence of my enemies. (laughs) Yes, we are called to be family. But what kind of family will we be? See, social scientists have begun to understand that churches, like real families, function as relational and emotional systems. Now, if you want to understand how a system functions, they will tell you, look at the human body. The human body itself is a system. Various organs and glands and hormones and cells all working together with the brain to regulate the health and the proper functioning of the body. The body functions with all these various parts as a a unit, as a system. In the body, they say, health, though, is not determined by the absence of disease, but by the effective functioning of the immune system. You see, no body, we understand, is ever without agents of disease. We all know from Biology 101, right, that every body has bacteria and viruses and all different kinds of things going on at the same time, but, but not all of us get sick because of those things because we have an immune system that is always at work combating those agents of disease within the body. So health is not determined by the absence of disease, but by the healthy functioning of an immune system that keeps those agents of disease at bay at any one time. So the question is not whether the body's immune system, the question is really if the body's immune system is strong enough to combat those agents of disease. In the same way, they say that healthy families and healthy churches are not defined as communities that don't have problems. There is no church or family that has no issues. But healthy families, healthy churches are ones that have a healthy functioning immune system that are able to overcome those agents of dis-ease and always be working towards the health and the functioning of the body. In this family system here at Faith Covenant Church, perhaps each one of us can be asking the question each week and each month and every year, am I an agent of dis-ease or am I an agent of health in the body? Am I contributing to the health of the body, or am I exacerbating the problem? And how do I know? I always find it interesting how science always seems to be playing catch-up to the Bible. Right? 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul, in the letter to the Corinthians, in the letter to the Colossians, identified that the church is the body of Christ. He understood this healthy functioning of the church as an emotional and relational system 2,000 years ago. We are the body of Christ, he tells us. 
You see, Paul loved this church in Philippi that he was writing to. That's what we, we learned in the, in the greeting. He, he held them in his heart. He had deep affection for them. But it was because of his love and his affection for them that he wanted them to experience the health and the wholeness of Jesus Christ in their lives and to not experience the dysfunction and the disunity that comes from unhealth. God loves his church. God loves this church. God loves you, and God loves me, and his desire is for us to also experience that same level of healthy functioning. It doesn't mean we're not going to have problems. It doesn't mean that sometimes we're not part of the problem. But see, even when we experience issues in our relationships with one another, Paul is encouraging the church in Philippi and us to look beyond the problems to the higher calling of God to understand that we are a community of people who are called to learn how to overcome our problems with the power of love in our lives. God loves this church so much that he sent his son to die for Faith Covenant Church. God sent his son to die for you and for me. That is the gospel message that, that Paul was so joyful, was moving forward. And if we lose sight of, of that intimate love that God has expressed through his son Jesus for each one of us, it's so easy to get focused on our, our own concerns and our own issues and our own problems. But when we understand the immeasurable gift that God has given us in Jesus Christ, Paul says that should motivate us to want to do the same thing in our relationships with one another. To look to the needs of others first and not to look to our own needs. There's no church that doesn't have challenges, but Jesus reveals to us that God is a God of love and reconciliation. And therefore, he says, our testimony is not just in what we say we believe or in what we say to other people but our testimony is born in how we live our relationships with one another. In our own families at home, in our marriages, in how we parent our children, in how we spend time with one another as a faith community, living life together 24-7, six days a week beyond just Sunday morning. If these things are true about the believers in Philippi, Paul says, then his joy will be made complete. His joy will be full because the gospel will be advancing in the lives of the people in the church that he loves. So how do we know if we're living out the truth of who God has called us to be in Jesus Christ? Paul says essentially there's a simple test. Now, we also know that things that are simple aren't always easy, but there's a simple test. He says, check your attitude. Check your attitude. If you want to know if you are living in line with what God is calling us to be and to do as a faith community, it starts by looking inward with your own attitude. Let's go back to verse 3. That's why he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. He goes on in verse 5 to say, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. Or other translations say, have the attitude of Jesus Christ. Underline, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. Star it, in the margin, in bold letters, write, attitude exclamation mark, underline, circle, squirrely thing. The test comes with your attitude. Watch out, he says, for 
selfish ambition and vain conceit. Selfish ambition is the virus that kills community. Selfish ambition is the virus that kills community. A definition of selfish ambition could be a self-motivated attempt to gain the upper hand in a situation. Paul says, don't let this attitude take hold inside of you or in your community. Instead, demonstrate humility that promotes the good of others, even at your own personal expense. Clovis Chapel, who was a minister from a century back, used to tell the story of two paddle boats who used to run on steam down the Mississippi River back in another era. He tells about one day they left Memphis about the same time, two boats traveling down the Mississippi River to New Orleans. And as they traveled side by side, sailors who were on one vessel or the other began to make comments to each other. Yeah, that's a slow poke over there. And they would, you know, banter back and forth. And they would comment about how slow the other boat was. And words kept being exchanged. Challenges were made. And before you know it, the race was on. Now the competition began to get fierce and the two boats were were chugging along and one boat began to lose steam and and run down because they didn't have enough fuel. They ran on coal to, to make a race. They had planned enough for the journey, but they hadn't planned on racing. And so one ambitious, enterprising young sailor started grabbing some of the cargo and throwing it into the furnace. Well, what they found is the cargo actually burned faster and a little hotter than the coal. So the other sailors came on board and they started throwing all the cargo into the furnace. Well, Clovis tells us they won the race, but they burned all their cargo. And in this story, he uses this as an example of in our own ambitious nature as human beings, how easy for it is it for us to lose sight of what it is that we're throwing into the fire in order to fuel our desires and to fuel the things that we want, all the while missing the point that maybe we're destroying the very cargo that we've been tasked with carrying. As churches and as Christians, how much cargo do we sacrifice in order to achieve the number one spot in our lives, in order to have our preferences become the priority in our churches? How many people never reach their destination because of the aggressiveness and the competitive spirit of Christians that are motivated by selfish ambition all in the name of God? From childhood, as Americans, we are taught that we are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights. Unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, while that might be true, if you take that and you combine that with social evolutionary theory that believes in the survival of the fittest, you have a a, a volatile cocktail of selfish ambition that has everybody pursuing number one and thinking it's their right to do so. See, our approach to church becomes an internal competition for perceived scarcity of resources. If I don't speak up and if I don't grab for what I want, then nobody else is going to speak up for me. Nobody's going to take care of my needs. And somehow we, we begin to believe that God's resources for each one of us are somehow limited. When the Bible says... Our God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. His his resources are unlimited. All we have to do is come to him and ask, and he will pour out treasure upon treasure to meet our needs. The encouragement, the comfort, the love, 
the mercy, the grace that Paul was talking about. And yes, when we lose sight of, of Jesus being the source, we think that somehow we have to earn and, and build our own happiness. We have to grab at the brass ring ourselves, whether it's in our work lives or in our family lives or, or even here at church. And decisions begin to be made not on what's best for the kingdom of God, but what's best for me, what's best for my group, what's best for my preferences and my needs, and what do I want? We come to church with an attitude of entitlement. We come with a a consumer mindset that says the customer is always right, right? If I don't like what's going on in my church, well, I'll just vote with my feet. I'll just walk right out. I don't have to put up with that. In fact, if I'm upset, let me speak to the manager. I want to talk to the person in charge. Right? We have this mindset that we've been enculturated to, that we have a right to demand what we want. And if we don't get what we want, then we have a right to be upset and go to whoever's in charge and whoever's responsible. And Paul's saying that is the wrong attitude. That does not build for health in a community. That actually divides community. It it sows dissent. It makes it hard to trust one another and to get along. Instead, we should begin with the attitude of humility. And if there's something broken, if there's something wrong, come and say, what can I do to help? How can I serve? Because when we step out with an attitude of humility and we seek to be a servant first and a consumer second, then we're modeling the attitude that Jesus had in his own life. Selfish ambition can be an unseen virus that spreads throughout the body before its uh, symptoms are even made known. How do we catch viruses? From other people. They're often passed from one person to another in backroom conversations, complaint sessions over the phone, sitting at coffee talking about everything that's wrong with everybody else but never taking the time to come together to say, how can we help make things better? When a virus enters the body, it enters inside individual cells, and it masks itself there while replicating, science tells us. And as it feeds on the cell, when it's done replicating, it breaks out of the cell wall, either destroying the cell in the process or carrying the remnants of the, long, of the cell along with it as it goes to find other cells to inhabit and repeat the, repeat the process. You see, selfish ambition is the virus that kills community. And we have to start with each one of ourselves looking at our own attitude. Do we have an attitude of selfish ambition? Are we thinking about our own emotional needs, our own desires first? Or are we looking to Christ and saying, how do I allow the attitude that Christ have, had to be the attitude that God builds in me? You see, that is the antidote to selfish ambition, Paul says, is the attitude of Christ. The attitude of Christ functions as the healthy immune system in his body. The spirit of Christ within us gives us the mind of Christ The Bible tells us it gives us the love of Christ. It gives us the purpose of Christ in our lives. And as we allow those things to take hold in our bodies and in our minds and in our hearts, then we allow the priority of God to become our priority. And we are truly set apart as saints, as God's holy people. Again, not that we are perfect people, but that our lives are set apart for God's holy purposes. We become a testimony to the love of God in and through our own relationships.
in your relationships with one another, Paul says, have the same mindset, have the same attitude as Jesus. And then he goes on to explain how that attitude that Jesus had led him to be the kind of person that he was. In verse 6, he says, who being in very nature God, we won't do a lot of underlining here, but just a few highlights, underline being in very nature God. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Underline, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, underline, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Underline, by becoming obedient obedient. Therefore, God exalted him, underline God exalted him, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, underline every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge or every tongue confess, underline every tongue acknowledge, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, underline to the glory of God the Father. See, Paul is saying, if you want to be ambitious, go ahead and be ambitious, but be ambitious to be like Jesus. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, Paul is saying, learn from the Master. Learn how Jesus modeled the path of life that we are to follow. Be like Jesus. Learn to be a servant to those around you. Then God will exalt you, and you don't have to exalt yourself. This is a paradox in the kingdom of God. Greatness in God's kingdom comes through humility, self-sacrifice, and service to those around us. That's why Jesus said in Mark 10, verse 43, Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we should be reminded that Jesus took the towel, wrapped it around his waist, got down on his knees, and he washed every one of those men's stinky feet. How many feet have you washed this week? How many feet have you washed this month? How many feet have you washed recently? See, if we are going to live like Jesus, we have to be willing to get down into the stinky, dirty, messy reality of people's lives. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of stink in this room. There's a lot of stink in my life. There's a lot of uckiness in my life. And that's why I need people who are willing to come and, and, and wash my feet. Just like you need people who are willing to come and wash your feet. But see, too often we're taught that we have to walk around with the, the, the mask on and the smile and say, oh, everything's great. Oh, yeah, we're so happy. We've come to worship today. And, and, and we want to have joy, but we also have to be real that, that we, we, we get messed up in this life. 
And when we have people who are willing to come together to say, I'm here to serve you and to wash your feet. You're here to serve me and to wash my feet. And I'm not going to be embarrassed or ashamed to get down into the mess of your life. And I'm not going to judge you for it. I'm not going to criticize you for it. In fact, that's why Jesus came, is because we're all messed up. Then we're encouraged to keep going in life. We're encouraged to stand up and dust off the muck and the mess and to keep stepping out to try again and to live into this new life that God, God has called us to live with one another. What does a servant look like? We know what a servant looks like, right? We're consumers. You know when you get good service and when you don't, right? You go to a restaurant, you got the waiter who comes. Hey, may I help you? What, what would you like? How can I serve you? Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Oh, no. Is your water empty? Let me refill it. You get to the end of a meal, and if you haven't got good service, you know, I'm not going to give this guy a tip, right? We know what service is like, but too often we play the role of the customer, the one who is there to be served, not the one who is the servant who's come to take your order. But men and women, Jesus comes as our waiter. Jesus comes as our servant. He comes, he is here now saying, how may I help you? And we too should come to church and come into all of our relationships with our wives and with our children and with our friends. How may I help you? What can I do to serve you? And if that is our attitude, if that is our starting point, then all of those other things take care of themselves. Even in the midst of conflicts and disagreements, if we come to those disagreements and say, how can I help you? Then we can work through those without it dividing us. See, this attitude should characterize the kind of family that we have with one another as followers of Jesus Christ. Because it's the attitude that Jesus himself had. Our unity with one another should flow from our experience of fellowship with God and the power that the Holy Spirit brings in our lives. Many years ago, there was a high school basket or a college basketball coach that made it to the Final Four playoffs, and he was asked, you know, why has your team done so well? What is it about this team that's allowed it to come as far as it has? Because everybody wants to know your secret for success. And the coach simply said, we have a motto on our team, and the motto is, good people do for themselves, great people do for others. That's a great motto. Good people do for themselves great people do for others. How many of you ever seen the hit show, hit TV show, Extreme Makeover, Home Edition? Isn't that a great show? Home Edition. They go and they go to a a town, right? And they get all of the people in the town involved in the project. They're they're, they're there to help one family. And they get the contractors and they get the the neighbors and they get the family and and everybody comes together and they donate materials and they donate time and they donate labor and and they film this whole process. Meanwhile, they send the family away on a vacation and they're wondering what's happening and they're building them a whole new home. And then, and then at the end, right, at the end of the show, they, they put this big bus in front, and they have everybody gather outside the bus, and they're all standing there beside the bus. And then, and then Ty comes on, and he says, are you guys ready? Yeah, we're ready. And everybody in unison says what? Move that bus! And the bus drives away, and the family just, their jaw drops, and the tears start to fall, and people, you can see the joy on everyone's faces because the whole community has come together to help somebody. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe that Paul is telling the Philippians and telling us 
is that heaven is going to be that day when, the, 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 when the, the curtain of history is pulled away and Jesus comes again, he's going to say, move that bus. And it's going to be the church that stands in joy to see the beauty of, of the servanthood of God's people because we have fulfilled, we've carried out the sacrifice that Jesus made through our own lives. And God's purpose will have been fulfilled in us. My hope and my prayer is that we can begin now to learn, each one of us, to meet the needs of those sitting right around us today. And then God will open the doors for us to meet the needs of the people in our neighborhoods, our neighbors, and around the world. But if we can't do it well first here, we really don't have anything to offer others. Let's pray. Holy God, we do thank you that you are patiently and persistently reminding us through your Son and through your Spirit that you have called us to be like Jesus. God, forgive us for our own attitudes of selfish ambition and for the ways that we've too often looked out for our own desires first, whether it be in our marriages or in our families or with our coworkers or even the way we've approached being church together. God, this morning, would you start a revolution in our hearts to, to want to be more like Jesus, to allow the attitude that Jesus had to be the antidote to the virus of selfish ambition in each one of us so that we can be agents of healing and wholeness and health to all those whom you would call us to serve. And we will give you praise and glory and we will have joy when we see your son's name lifted up, and every knee bowing, and every tongue confessing that he is Lord. God, would you receive the offerings that we have prepared for you this morning, both in terms of praise and worship, as well as tithes and resources, and would you multiply it all for your glory and not for our own? We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus, who gave his life so that we might have life. Amen. Will the ushers please come to receive the morning's offerings?